Good morning. If you would turn with me to 2 Timothy 2, we're going to be looking at a number of different verses today. Thank you for bearing with me. As you know, if you've heard me before, I usually like to speak from passages. It's what I would prefer. But I believe the Lord has left a message on my heart, and so we're going to look at an overview, if you would, and look at several different passages. 2 Timothy 2 and verse 24 And the servant of the Lord must not strive, but to be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient, in meekness instructing those that oppose themselves, if God preadventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth, and that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who are taken captive by him at his will. Paul is writing to Timothy, and he gives and he gives him these instructions. And so I've spent a lot of time meditating on these instructions and trying to understand them, because if you desire to be a servant of a God, these things must be true of you. And how do they practically work out? How do you make them work? It is not easy to be gentle, to be patient, to be meek, and not to strive. And so the question I had that I asked myself was, did Paul follow and practice what he taught? So I'd like to look at the book of 2 Corinthians, if you would. And I'd like to go through, <clears throat> excuse me, and look at a number of these verses in 2 Corinthians to see how Paul handled adversity, his character was under attack, his ministry was under attack, and even his message was under attack. And so he needs to respond, and can he respond in meekness and patience? And can he do so without striving? And so I'd like to look at a few of these verses. If you have not studied 2 Corinthians, I would recommend it highly. But if you have not studied it, we are going to do a very brief overlook of this, particularly from the point of view of how Paul handles adversity. As I've been thinking about this fact that a servant of God must not strive, I've been reading several of his books to see how they read from that point of view. And there'd be two books that if you want to really find out how Paul handled adversity, that I would recommend that you look at. The first one is 2 Corinthians, and the second one is a book of Philemon. Is a book of Philemon. And you'll see how someone handles something not from the position of power and not from the position of might, but from the position of patience and meekness and allowing the Spirit of God to work. First verse we're going to look at is in 
2 Corinthians 1. In verse 23, Moreover, I call God for a record upon my soul that to spare you I came not as yet into Corinth, not for that we have dominion over your faith, but are helpers of your joy, for by faith ye stand. Paul's credibility is under attack because he had said he was coming at one time and he didn't come. And so now they're questioning whether he keeps his word or not. And so he needs to defend himself against his, this attack on his credibility. But notice how he does it. He says, moreover, I call God for a record upon my soul to spare you. I came not as yet unto Corinth. It wasn't because he's lax. It wasn't because he doesn't keep his word. It wasn't because he makes plans flippantly and then doesn't keep them. He's not because he's not a man of commitment. There was a reason, and he gives it. But notice what he says next, for not for that we have dominion over your faith. Dominion's an interesting word. It's an interesting study. When Peter writes to the elders in 1 Peter 5, he says that elders must not exercise dominion. Now, it would seem to me that if anyone had a right to have dominion, and the right to have dominion over a church such as Corinth was the father, one who called them his spiritual father, one who planted that church, one who had all the authority of an apostle, and yet notice that Paul says, I do not have dominion over your faith. So one of the questions I have to ask myself is, do I, am I careful to make sure I don't exercise dominion? The Lord says we're not to be like the world's leaders by exercising dominion. We are to be servants. So I would suggest to you that Paul understands that. Paul understands what it means to be a servant leader. And he says, and are helpers of your joy, for by faith you stand. I have to admit that there are times that I get a little excited and I get mixed up. And I'm trying to do the right thing. But in trying to do the right thing, I try to force it. And that's what dominion is. It's force of will. It's not meekness. It's not patience. It's none of that, those things. Sometimes it's easy to get frustrated when people are doing the wrong thing. Turn over to the next chapter, if you would. Chapter 2. We're going to look at verse 4. For out of much affliction... In anguish of heart, I wrote unto you with many tears, not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love which I have more abundantly unto you. I have been, probably still will be, and probably will struggle with laying guilt trips. Someone's doing the wrong thing to make them feel guilty about doing the wrong thing. But notice, 
what Paul says, for out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote unto you with many tears, not that you should be grieved. That wasn't his purpose. His purpose was not to lay a guilt trip. But yet you might know the love with which I more abundantly write unto you. He wrote a very difficult letter. He said some very difficult things. But it wasn't cause them grief. It was so they could understand how deeply he cared for them. Go over to the next chapter, if you would. Chapter 3. Verse 3, and it says, for, much, for as much as ye are manifestly declared to be the epistles of Christ ministered by us, written not with ink but with the spirit of the living God, not in tables made of stones but fleshly tables of the heart. He had a right because he, they were manifestly declared to be epistles of Christ ministered by him, served by him. You know, sometimes I have to keep that focus. That if you're dealing with a difficult case in a counseling situation, whether it's marriage or just individually, that these who truly believe in Jesus Christ are epistles of Christ. Christ is in them. Christ is working in their lives, and the Spirit of God is working. I was counseling a young man, and he couldn't keep the counseling appointment. And he texted me that he was not well, and he would have to miss the counseling appointment. And in the following text, he sent me a picture, tech-savvy as he was, of the doctor's note telling him that he needed bed rest. And I told him, you know, <clears throat> as much as I appreciated that, I didn't have dominion over his faith. But I appreciated his willingness to be accountable because I believe it showed God working in him. It wasn't something I demanded. It wasn't something I even questioned the fact that he was sick. But it was encouraging to me because I'm a helper in his joy that he wanted to be accountable and he wanted to show that he was truly sick. I don't know that a year ago, two years ago, five years ago, that I would have been in that position. It's not an easy situation that I'm dealing with. And I will tell you, I don't know that I would have trusted the person, but I've come to understand that part of being patient and part of not striving is to trust that someone is Christ and he's an epistle of Christ. Turn over to the next chapter, if you would. In verse 5, for we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servant for Jesus' sake. For God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us.
the church that I grew up in basically had this verse on the right wall, my right, your left. We preached not ourselves, but Christ Jesus. I would suggest to you that one of the ways that a servant of God does not strive and he's patient and he's meek is to have less of self and more of Christ. And to make sure that when a problem <clears throat> arises, excuse me, that Christ is the answer, not what I want, not what I think is best, not what my experience tells me, but Christ. We preach not ourselves. Because why can he say that? Because we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. I'm reminded of the famous evangelist Billy Sunday was walking in the streets and someone began to mock him and he was pointing to someone who was in the gutter and he said, that's one of your converts right there. And Billy Sunday said, you're absolutely right, that's my convert because if it was God's, he wouldn't be in the gutter anymore. And sometimes when my force of will takes over and I strive, I can win the argument, but I'll lose the battle. Because it's not God. It's not the excellency of the power of God that's changing that person's life. It's my force of will. And my force of will does not have any staying power. In fact, the truth of the matter has no power at all. Because all the power has to be of God. And Paul gets it. How can we be patient and long-suffering and not striving? The key is when we understand that the power is of God. It's not going to be my choice words, my logic, my wisdom, my eloquence that wins the argument. It has to be a work that God himself does in the heart. And only when it's that work can it show forth as we see here. Turn over the fifth chapter, if you would, in the 12th verse. And Paul says this, For we commend not ourselves again unto you, but give you occasion to glory on our behalf, that ye may have somewhat to answer them which glory in appearance and not in heart. Paul says that glorious things have been happening there. People have been coming to the Lord. But he's not putting himself forward. He's not commending himself for that. It's something to be gloried in, but it's something in contrast to the false teachers and what they've lacked. So even when he has something that he could probably brag about, even when he has something that he might be able to have a few minutes of stroking his own ego, he still doesn't do it. I'll tell you, sometimes it's difficult 
You look at me and you'll say, what does he have to stroke his ego about? And you're probably right, but sometimes it's difficult not to brag, not to talk about what the Lord's been doing in your life or what he's been doing through you. Had a young man come up to me, he was pretty discouraged, and he says, you know, I pray and I never get what I pray for, and I've been listening to all these messages, and it seems like every time they pray, they get exactly what they need. And I said, well, they've been talking about their successes. They haven't been talking about their failures. Sometimes it's easy to talk about all the great things that have been happening, which a little bit more rare to talk about some of the things that have been happening and some of the struggles that we have and some of the difficulties that we have. And even when Paul's going to talk about something that he could quote unquote brag about, he doesn't. He doesn't. Go over to the sixth chapter, if you would, in the 11th verse. When I'm all done with this, I hope you go back and read the whole book and get the whole message. As we're just hitting the little part of the message here. The 11th verse says this, O ye Corinthians, our mouth is open unto you, our heart is enlarged. One of the issues here is that there was a blockage between Paul and the Corinthians, and Paul says, it's not me. I have an open heart. My heart's enlarged, my mouth is open, I'm ready to receive you, my arms are open. If there was any pushing away, it wasn't on Paul's part. You know, I have sometimes, ha I sometimes, <clears throat> true confession time, I have a problem a lot. But I help a person as much as I can, but when they start pushing me away, I'm done. And I write them off. And Paul says he doesn't do that. You're pushing me away, you're pushing me away, you're pushing me away, and my arms are still open, my mouth's still open, my heart's enlarged. I'm still ready to receive you. Reminds me of the prodigal father. Never wrote his son off. Had open arms waiting for him to return the whole time. Am I like that? I know not to strive. But sometimes in, the, in, 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 in overreacting to not striving, I quit. And that's not right either. And so I'm reading this, and I go, well, Paul doesn't quit. We're going to see a little bit more of that as we, as we move on. Seventh chapter. Listen to his appeal. These are people who are pushing him away. These are people who are questioning his ministry, questioning his character, and, and, and calling into question his message. And this is what he says in the second verse. Receive us. We have wronged no man. We have corrupted no man. We have defrauded no man. I speak not this to condemn you, for I have said before that ye are in our hearts to die and live with. Receive us. Open your heart to us. Enlarge your heart. Our hearts are enlarged to you. Enlarge our hearts. We, can't, we want to be helpers of your joy, but we can't be until you open your hearts to us. But how gentle is that? And then notice again, again, 
what he says. I speak not this to condemn you. I want to tell you, I struggle with that. When you're in a battle and you're trying to help someone and they can't see it and they don't see it, not to condemn them at that point, not to call them out for what they're doing, and to continue to be patient and meek and not to strive. Well, I want to tell you, it's not easy for me. Turn over to the 10th chapter, if you would. Paul's being questioned because in presence he's meek, his speech faltering. There's nothing about his physical presence that's commanding. They say, oh, he's bold when he's away, and he writes bold letters, but he's not much in person. Notice what he says. Now I, Paul, myself beseech you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in the presence and base among you, but being absent and bold towards you, Why should we be meek and gentle? Because Christ was meek and gentle. Let me say that again. Why should we be meek and gentle? Because Christ was meek and gentle. Ultimately, what Paul says is, be a follower of me as I'm a follower of Christ. And you know what? Paul was. And so the question I have to ask myself how like Christ am I when the stress rises and the situation gets tough and I'm under attack? How like Christ am I? And I want to tell you, not too often am I meek and gentle. And it's something I got to work on, and it's something I got to strive, and it's something I want to achieve. Because my goal is to be like Christ. I've been studying through the Gospels, and I will tell you, it's amazing how many times Christ was full of compassion. And that's not a trait that you would name me as being full of. But it's a trait that I need to be full of because Christ was full of compassion. In the, in the argument between Paul and Barnabas, I probably would have sided with Paul because I tend to look at the big picture. And I forget to be compassionate for the individual. I tend to be the one who can point out the scripture why your faith is lacking or why you shouldn't be suffering or shouldn't be crying so much because of this, that, or other thing. And I forget compassion. I will tell you, that the time is spending time with the campsters at Mexicali in the hospital taught me a lot about compassion. It taught me to keep my mouth shut and to be there and hug them and cry with them and not tell them a better way or not tell them something else, but simply to be compassionate. And I never understood what that meant before. And God takes us to places and takes us through things so that we can fully understand what that meant. Turn over to the 11th chapter, if you would.
in the 30th verse. If I must needs glory, I will glory in the things which concern my infirmities. Most of us have an ego. Some of us are able to keep it in check. Some of us are not. I will tell you that this verse says a lot to me about what I need to be speaking about. And then turn over to the 30th verse of the 11th chapter. Oh, we just did that. Sorry. Now go to um, 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 9. It says this, and he said unto me, my grace is sufficient for thee. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I would rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasures in infirmities and reproaches and necessities and persecution and distress for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then, for when I am weak, then I am strong. I would say one of the reasons why Paul could be meek in face of adversity was because he had understood the grace of God. He understood the grace of God because at one point he was weak himself. One of the areas that I struggle with is self-sufficiency. And I'm reminded again and again and have to remind myself constantly that when I was without strength. Christ died for me. And then I have to remind myself again and again, I'm still without strength. My problem is somehow I think I'm strong now. Somehow I can do things independently. If you read the book of Luke and read it carefully, as Luke presents him as a son of man, you will see that the Lord was constantly dependent on prayer. And you want to know how dependent or independent you are, ask yourself how much time I pray. Because a truly dependent person prays and cries out to God, as Paul did. And so Paul says, my grace is sufficiency for my strength is made perfect in, me in meekness. He found out what that meant. He prayed. And he waited. And God answered. That he wasn't going to remove the thorn in the flesh. But he understood when it was all done that his strength was made perfect in weakness. It's when I am weak, then I am strong. The world says exactly the opposite. The world says if you're weak, you're going to be run over. The strong survive. And we get caught up in the world's way of thinking that it's our force of will that's going to accomplish something. And God says, no. It's not by might. It's not by power. It's by the Spirit of God. And Paul understood that. He understood that like I think no one else ever understood that.
And then look at the 12th. Look at the 14th verse, if you would. You know, I've taught through 2 Corinthians. I've read 2 Corinthians. Until I read this book from the viewpoint of how do you handle grace, graciously handle adversity, I never understood this verse or it never jumped off the page. And it says this. Behold, a third time I'm ready to come to you. If you get most commentaries on 2 Corinthians and you pull them off the shelf, they'll spend two or three pages talking about whether this is the first, second, or third time he's coming and how many times he's come and what this means. And to me, they miss the whole meaning of the rest of this verse. And he says this, And I will not be a burdensome to you, for I seek not yours, but you. For the children ought not to lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children. In context, turn back to the 11th chapter, if you would, and look at verse 19. He's writing about the false teachers and how they've been taken in by the false teachers. And he says this about them. For ye suffer fools gladly, seeing yourself are wise. The fools they were suffering were the false teachers, but they thought they were wise, and so they were accepting what the false teachers were doing. Now notice what they were suffering. For you suffer if a man bring you into bondage, if a man devour you, if a man take of you, if a man exalt himself, if a man smite you on the face. Think about that. Take them into bondage. Devour them, take of you, take their possessions, take what they own, take, demand their money. In fact, one of the things that they were knocking Paul for was that he wasn't taking their money, and they were. And so they were allowing these people virtually to rob them, and they thought more highly of them than they did Paul. Paul in 2 Corinthians uh, earlier said this, 11 and, and verse 7 says, Have I committed an offense in abasing myself that ye might be exalted because I have preached to you the gospel of God freely? I robbed other churches taking wages of, of them to do you service? Was he at fault for being humble? Was he at fault for not taking their money? Yes, they were holding him in account. Because if he was truly a servant of God, then he was worthy of his hire. And since he wasn't taking their money, therefore, something was wrong with him. And then notice his defense. Let's turn back now to verse, four, um, verse 14. I will not be burdensome to you. He had made that commitment that he would not take from them. He would not cause them to be under a burden because of his and it's important, he wasn't interested in their money. Notice what he says next. For I seek not yours, but you. He wasn't interested in their money. He wasn't interested in anything they had to offer him. You know, I read that. 
And I stopped and I thought, and I said, what is my motivation for serving? Is it because I seek what's best for you, or is it because I seek yours? Because Paul could truly say, I seek not yours, but you. And I was wondering, in what areas do I seek from someone? You know, we're, we're all basically selfish, and I particularly. And what is it of my own self-interest that I desire? Is it accolades? I can tell you, you can, you can soon find out what your motivation is by how you respond when something you were expecting doesn't happen. If you preach and you get down and no one talks to you afterwards, you say, wow, I wasn't very good. Is that what I was seeking, a pat on the back? Or was I seeking to stir hearts? Was I seeking for God and the Spirit to work in lives? Was I seeking what was best for the hearers, or was I seeking what was best for me? Paul could honestly say, I'm seeking what's best for you. I can only speak for myself, but I can tell you that I like being accepted. And sometimes I'm seeking acceptance. And praise isn't bad. And it's always nice to hear a little praise for a job well done. Sometimes it's friendships. It's nice to be liked. Sometimes it's admiration. It's nice to be admired. I could go on, but I think you know what my ego battles with. But Paul was interested in them, in you. And you know that? I read that, and I thought about what I'm seeking, and I will tell you, it's like a slap in the face. What's my motivation? Am I really doing what's best for the individual? It takes a total lack of selfishness to seek what's best for the individual. I would suggest to you the problem is very few people understand what true love is. Many people think of love as what's in it for me. Sometimes we'll say things like, I love you, but what we really mean is I desire you. And really, that's the worst sort of selfishness. And it's exactly the opposite of agape love. Agape love is sacrificial love that demands that we give without expecting something in return. Agape love is not natural. It's not human. It's divine. It's obtained by God. It comes about by being born of God. First John 4, 7. Beloved, 
Let us love one another, for the love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. Do I love my brothers, or do I love myself? And who do I love more? I will gladly admit that my mind works on a different level in a different way than most people, but those are the questions I ask myself as I'm reading these scriptures. 1 Corinthians 13 tells us about that agape love. Love suffereth long, is kind. Love envieth not, love vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, doth not besave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil. Do I understand the love of God, and I, am I able to show forth that love to others? Turn over Ephesians 4. Gladly tell you this is one of my pet peeve verses. I understand this verse, I think. Verse 15. And he says this, But speaking the truth in love may grow up unto him in all things, which is his head, even Christ. You know, Paul isn't defining love here. But most of the world and some Christians believe that it's I'm okay, you're okay. As long as you're done talking to me, I feel good, then you love me. And that's simply not biblical love. That's simply not God's love. The truth of the matter is we often don't speak the truth because we're selfish. I have been guilty of that more than once. Countless, actually. I know someone's in trouble. I know someone needs help. I know they're headed down the wrong path. And I stay silent because I like their friendship. I like what I'm getting out of the relationship, and I don't want to ruin or disturb that relationship, so I stay silent. And the Bible says that's self-love. That's self-love. That's not divine love. And the Lord told me, you know, you're guilty. You're guilty of self-love. Let's go back and finish up this rest of what Paul has to say here in the 12th chapter. Verse 14, I will not be burdensome to you, for I seek not yours but you. For the children ought not to lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children. And I want to tell you that's the proof of what I'm talking about. When you're raising a child, you are not to do something that gets you the benefit. We've all seen people who raise their child as their best friend. We've all seen parents who fail to discipline because they want the child to love them. We do daycare and have for over 30 years, and I will tell you, you can, you can spot the parents who desire more for their child to love them than that child goes up to be a well-disciplined person. My wife loves the children, and she disciplines them, and they act different around her than they do their own parents. 
because that parent isn't interested in what's best for the child. He's interested in what's best for himself. And so Paul's saying, just like with a parent-child relationship, we are to do what's best We should be like that with each other. If we truly love each other, we will do what's best for each other. And then notice what he says in the next verse. I will very gladly spend and be spent with you, though the more abundantly I love you, the less I be loved. Can I say that with Paul? And I have to tell you, I struggle to say that with Paul because, as I told you, I cut people off. If you reject me, I'm fine. I have people who need my help, and I'll move on. And notice that's not true of Paul. And I will very gladly spend and be spent for you. If someone rejects me, I'm not very gladly being spent for them. I feel like I'm being a doormat, and they're walking on me and using me. And yet Paul's saying, I'm willing to be a doormat for you. That's not easy. And so I'm suggesting, and I have to ask myself when I react, how am I reacting? Is it selfishness that's causing that reaction? We like to sometimes claim that a reaction is caused because we're trying to honor the name of Christ. But sometimes we have to be honest if we really look at our motives carefully and let God reveal our hearts, our reaction isn't the honor of Christ, it's our own honor and our own ego that's causing us to act like that. And then this one strikes me right in the heart, though the more abundantly I love you, the less I be loved. That's divine love. We all like to be loved. And when someone is unloving towards us, and I can only speak for myself, but when someone's unloving towards me, I can't tell you that I love them more. I should hang my head in shame and tell you, no, I don't love them more. And yet I read this and realize that's what I need to do. I need to love them more. I would suggest to you that Paul does imitate Christ. And I need to imitate Christ because Christ always loves me. And Christ is always there when I finally turn in his direction when I've been pushing him away. Christ loved me when I was his enemy and died for me. Am I Christ-like? We'll close with this, 2 Corinthians 9 and 8. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. I don't understand the depth of poverty he went to. He humbled himself. He humbled himself even to the death of the cross. And I look at him and I say, I've nowhere come close to humbling myself to that point. 
I've nowhere come close to being poor that someone I, who is my enemy could be rich. And I realize that if I have a desire to be like the Lord Jesus and to spend, be spent in service for him, I have a long ways to go. I have a long ways to go. But I would suggest that that's a desire that God has for all of us to be humble servants of the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we come to you today and we thank you. We thank you for the example we have in the Lord Jesus and we thank you that Paul could say, be followers of me as I am a follower of Christ. And Father, we'd ask that you would open our hearts so that we could read the scriptures with convictions, that we could be hearers of the word and not doers only, that we might see ourselves in the passages that we read, that our hearts might be open, Father, to receive the truth. And then, Father, that we would be able to truly show the love of Jesus, the compassion of the Lord Jesus, Father, that we would be willing to say with Paul that I'd be willing to be spent and to love no matter how much I love. I'm loved in return. So, Father, we'd ask that you'd speak to our hearts so that we would understand what it means, Father, to know the love of Jesus Christ and to have it shine forth in our lives. Oh, Father, as the rest of the activities take place in this luncheon we're about ready to go into, we thank you for the food. We thank you for the provisions, Father. We thank you for those who are willing to unselfishly serve no matter what is returned to them, Father. Oh, Father, we thank you for your servants. We thank you for those among us who are true examples of being a servant of God. And pray, Father, that more of us would understand what it means to lay our life down humbly, Father, to serve the King. We give you thanks again in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.